This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. It must have been love at first sight for Morris Moore. As he marched through the wilderness along the banks of the Cape Fear River, in 1715. Although this was likely his first time in the Cape Fear region, it certainly wasn't his first meeting with the North Carolina coast. He and his brother James, both sons of South Carolina's then-governor James Moore Sr., had traveled to the state to fight alongside the colonists in the Tuscarora War with Native Americans in 1711. And he later owned land in both Beaufort and Bath. But as he made his way home to South Carolina from Newburn in 1715, he crossed over the Cape Fear River at the high bluff known as Sugarloaf, now part of Carolina Beach State Park. What he found on the other side was a luscious tract of untouched and undeveloped land on the low bluffs of the river. An opportunity that immediately made an impression on him. So much so that he would spend the next decade plotting his return, devising a plan for settlement and recruiting friends and family to join him in establishing a new community on the land overlooking the water. What more and his settlers would build on the land starting in 1726 would become known as Brunswick Town and boasts the distinction of being the first successful settlement to take root in the Cape Fear. Over the next five decades, Brunswick Town emerged as a pivotal player in the cultivation of North Carolina's identity as a colony, and served as a sanctuary in which its residents fostered and nurtured their growing rebellious spirit. Although it would ultimately be a casualty of circumstance in the American Revolution, the sweeping story of Brunswick Town is undeniably intertwined in the founding of this country. It was the home of two royal governors, the site of an early act of sedition against British rule, and it fought off vicious attacks from the Spanish and Mother Nature herself. Even though the wilderness began to reclaim the abandoned settlement after the war, it would be resurrected for a second life as a Civil War fort, and re-emerge yet again 200 years after it was built as one of the state's defining excavation and historic sites. Brunswick Town is a story of American ambition and an example of a town that despite a calvary of obstacles storming its way, has yet to give up the ghost. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. 
I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington. This week, we're wrapping up our two-week look at the origins of the Cape Fear region through the lens of its earliest colonial settlements, Charlestown and Brunswick Town. Last week, we told the story of Charlestown, the failed first attempt to settle the Cape Fear region that would prove to be a valuable lesson for the men and women who tried again 60 years later in Brunswick Town, just a few miles away. Brunswick Town would become the first enduring settlement in the region and eventually gained an attention and affection that Charlestown could have desperately used to survive. But like its short-lived predecessor, Brunswick Town also faced a wave of hurdles that would challenge what its colonists were trying to build and ultimately claim the town's once promising status as a powerful epicenter of the colony. If you can't already tell, Brunswick Town's story is incredibly complex, so much so that we can't possibly cover it all in one episode. So in keeping with our theme, we're only going to focus on the establishment, ascendancy, and decline of the colonial town of Brunswick. Its role as Fort Anderson in the Civil War, and even its historic excavation, will be explored in future episodes. As always, I'll share with you our story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend. And then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we chart the sprawling story of Brunswick Town and the birth of the Cape Fear region. The decade between Morris Moore's first encounter with the land that would become Brunswick Town and its eventual founding was anything but a quiet one. Not only did he continue to lead forces to fend off attacks from Native Americans in both North and South Carolina, he was also indicted on charges of breaking into the offices of then-North Carolina Governor Charles Eden in an effort to find evidence that substantiated a rumor that the governor was consorting with Blackbeard the pirate. Moore never found his proof, and it seems he was only fined for the break-in. But it certainly kept his name on the lips of some pretty important people. And the Moore family was already pretty important themselves. Morris's father was the aforementioned governor of what was arguably Britain's favorite colony, and he was the husband of Elizabeth Lillington, the daughter of Alexander Lillington, a future Patriot officer who would lead the charge at the region's most notable battle of the Revolution, at Moore's Creek Bridge. Some accounts will even say that Moore was related, albeit tenuously as a step-grandson, to John Yeamans, who you might remember from our Charlestown episode as the founder of the competing Port Royal Settlement, which would become Charleston, South Carolina. Through it all, Morris Moore never forgot the memory of the land on the banks of the Cape Fear River. 
or the potential business venture he saw in settling it. There was just one problem. The Lord's proprietors, who, if you remember, had been given the land that made up the Carolinas, still held the deed, and they forbid any settlement within range of the coast. Luckily for Moore, there was a new governor in town, George Burrington, and he was about sick and tired of listening to the Lord's proprietors spout orders from an ocean away. So, on June 3, 1725, he defied their mandate and gave Moore 1,500 acres on the western side of the river to build his town. He would name it Brunswick, in a nod of flattery to the man sitting on the throne in Britain, King George I, who held from the German house of Brunswick Hanover. He would name it Brunswick, in a nod of flattery to the man sitting on the throne in Britain, King George I, who held from the German house of Brunswick Hanover. Of the 1,500 acres granted, Moore designated 320 of them butting up against the water on which to build homes. Studies done by archaeologists like Lawrence Lee and Stanley South have found that Moore initially envisioned 336 half-acre properties to be tightly packed into the site. But some were never sold, and others were set aside for churches, cemeteries, and streets. Buying a property also came with the condition that a house be built within eight months, so as not to leave the sites barren and undeveloped. As South puts it in his book on the excavation of Brunswick Town, Moore was ever the businessman, and he knew that if he was going to build a prosperous settlement and begin to see some sort of profit, the town needed to grow, and it needed to grow fast. Morris wasn't the only one from his family to make the journey from South Carolina to Brunswick to put down roots. His brother, Roger Moore, was also granted a few hundred acres on the land, on which he used his slaves and other laborers to begin building Orton Plantation in 1725. You'll recognize that name if you've listened to our Firestarter episode which detailed the explosive role the palatial home played in the local film industry's founding production. Orton, which is now privately owned and no longer open to the public, is one of the region's most storied structures, and we're going to revisit it in a future episode of the show. As Brunswick Town took hold, so too did the motives of Morris and Roger Moore and their associates specifically their brother Nathaniel and the now former governor, Burrington, who had been effectively removed from office. In his book, The Lower Cape Fear in Colonial Days, Lawrence Lee suggests that the Moore brothers and Burrington were buying up acreage in the region by the thousands, possibly in an attempt to use their influence in growing land wealth to break the region away from the North and South Carolina colonies and form their own province. At some point, it's said that Morris and Roger each owned at least 25,000 acres, and their membership 
in the quote-unquote family of wealthy landowners in the Cape Fear, as they were so menacingly called, certainly afforded them some considerable sway. But even being part of a colonial mafia of sorts couldn't get their rumored plan off the ground, and a province of the Cape Fear never came to be. That was due in part to the Lord's proprietor selling the Carolinas back to the crown in 1731, having reportedly had enough of those pesky colonists constantly defying their authority. For the first time since before Charlestown was attempted in the Cape Fear, the Carolinas were now owned by the king. Despite the deed changing hands, and some internal opposition to the tight grip the family had on the region, Brunswick Town, slowly but surely, had started to gain some prominence. Morris was its first resident, followed in short order by Cornelius Harnett Sr., who purchased the first two lots in Brunswick. Harnett was the father of a soon-to-be-famous Revolutionary War patriot of the same name and he would operate a ferry from Brunswick Town to the opposite side of the Cape Fear River, along what was known as the Hallover. How big Brunswick Town would grow from those first residents is still a matter of debate, though some historians put the maximum residential population somewhere around 200 or 250, including those enslaved. In 1729, Brunswick would officially be granted its township, and four years later, it was made the governing seat of the precinct of New Hanover, meaning elections were to be held in town, and a tax on its earliest residents would go to fund a courthouse and jail. Port Brunswick was also established, and now constituted the entirety of the Cape Fear, meaning all vessels had to pass through the port of entry at Brunswick Town. Through that port, barrels of tar, pitch, and turpentine, and wood products made from the state's signature longleaf pine, were among the exports hauled out on dozens of ships each year. At this point, the only thing that could usurp Brunswick's burgeoning power was close-by competition, which it got in 1733 with the rumblings of a new settlement being established on the opposite side of the river. One that would initially go by a few names. New Carthage, New Liverpool, Newton, and eventually, Wilmington. When Governor Gabriel Johnston was sworn into office in 1734, he began taking meetings in the Brunswick Courthouse. But as his relationship with the Moore brothers and the larger family disintegrated, he took a shot at them by moving his business to Wilmington and using his power to promote its rapid development, effectively undercutting Brunswick Town's influence. You see, during colonial days, North Carolina didn't have a designated capital like we do today in Raleigh, but rather a seat of power that followed the governor wherever he hung his hat. This benefited Wilmington, which had become a town under Johnston's rule, and even took the county seat away from Brunswick. 
Johnston's move was a blow to the small town 14 miles down the river, or as Lawrence Lee so subtly put it in his book, quote, for Brunswick, it was the beginning of a slow return to the forest from which it sprung, end quote. Eventually, the nomadic capital would work in Brunswick town's favor. In 1758, when Governor Arthur Dobbs moved from Newburn to Brunswick, effectively turning the town into the state's de facto capital. Moore, unfortunately, would never see it as he died in 1743. He also narrowly missed what would become a defining moment in the town's history, when, in 1748, England's war with the Spanish was brought right to Brunswick's doorstep. A trio of Spanish ships had slipped into the Cape Fear River on September 3, 1748, and they arrived off Brunswick the next day with an announcement of cannon fire. A contingent of Spanish soldiers made it to shore and seized the town, forcing residents to flee into the woods nearby with only what they could carry on their backs and leaving the wealthy town ripe for the pillaging. But the residents of Brunswick weren't going to lick their wounds. Within days, they regrouped under Captain William Dry, and along with a few dozen other colonists, dealt a surprise counterattack on the Spaniards, forcing them back onto their ship, the La Fortuna. The Spanish's' bombardment of Brunswick town from aboard that ship was only interrupted by a massive explosion of unknown origin which killed most of those on board and allowed the residents to take their town back. They also captured the surviving Spanish as prisoners and the La Fortuna for themselves. The goods on board the ship that weren't charred or waterlogged were sold off, and the proceeds were collected to fund the construction of St. James Church in Wilmington and St. Philip's Church in Brunswick. The former was the recipient of an oil painting of Jesus Christ found on board, titled Ecce Homo, which is Latin for Behold the Man. The painting still hangs in St. James Episcopal Church in downtown Wilmington to this day. Meanwhile, St. Philip's Church in Brunswick had been a required facet of the town since 1729, but demanding it and building it would be two completely different directives. But the work was worth the wait. The unbelievably sturdy building would go on to weather hurricanes, fires, and was even pummeled with cannonballs during the Civil War. It would be considered one of the state's grandest public structures and ultimately became the centerpiece of the town, a fact that is still true of what remains of Brunswick today. Dobbs is even buried within the church's walls, as are almost a dozen other residents in unmarked graves. Most of them weren't even buried there until after the town was abandoned, a show of just how sacred this ground was for its residents. Despite all of those actions, Brunswick never developed into a big town and was often described by those who passed through its borders in dismissive terms. 
One such observation described the state of things as such. Quote, the little town of Brunswick stands in an exceedingly pleasant situation, but is very inconsiderate, nor does it contain more than 50 or 60 homes. End quote. As it wasn't densely populated, homes were pretty spaced out, and plenty of trees not yet uprooted to make way for more structures cast the town in a picturesque waterfront charm. Perhaps that's why Governor Dobbs moved in, bringing with him the executive branch of the colony. Still, his arrival wasn't earth-shattering, and it didn't attract new settlers like moths to a flame. And it didn't attract a new wave of settlers like moths to a flame. Unlike when Johnston was governor and living in Wilmington, the General Assembly never met in Brunswick Town probably because Brunswick Town was never granted any representation in the governing body. But Dobbs's presence did restore some clout to the town, which was largely comprised of wealthy, or at least well-to-do, residents. Dobbs's own wealth was on full display when he purchased Russellboro, an unfinished two-story home that he paid to complete and rename Castle Dobbs which is super subtle. Dobbs would live there and lord over the state from Brunswick until his unexpected death in 1765. Enter Governor William Tryon, who settled into the new role by settling into Dobbs's home and renaming it Castle Tryon. Across its varied owners, the house was an immaculate show of wealth, with multiple stories of decorated rooms, elegant fixtures, an outdoor kitchen, and a basement complete with a stocked wine cellar. The house was one of the first things the British burned when they rampaged the town in 1776, perhaps in a petty show of destruction. As war with England crept closer to a reality, the residents of Brunswick were quickly getting fed up with the taxation imposed by the British and the general ire of being a country governed by a king who had never stepped foot on its soil. When Brunswick County was formed out of New Hanover in 1764, Brunswick Town was again given the distinction of being a county seat of power. It was only a short time later that the town would deliver its most notorious contribution to the growing revolution in late 1765 and early 1766, when residents refused to be bamboozled into buying stamps now prescribed with a tax intended to fatten the pockets of those in England. When the vessel diligence arrived with a shipment of stamps at Port Brunswick, an armed militia of residents led by Cornelius Harnett Jr., met the ship on the docks and refused to allow them to unload the packages. This is one of the first ever instances of the American colonists taking up arms in direct opposition of the crown and the government over which they were ruled. The incident only further escalated when the rebellious residents actually placed Governor Tryon under house arrest 
until he yielded to their demands. One of which was to turn over any local officials taking refuge in Castle Tryon so that they could sign a statement that they wouldn't execute any stamped papers in the colony so as not to give in to the tax. They eventually got their defiant signatures, but Tryon was livid. He had been overthrown, at least temporarily, by his own constituents. His relationship with Brunswick was never the same after the Stamp Act rebellion, and by 1770, he had relocated to Newburn to live out the remainder of his time as the Crown's law enforcer at Tryon's palace. From here, Brunswick Town's livelihood wanes significantly. Although Port Brunswick maintained a steady stream of people coming in and out, the town no longer served much of a purpose, beyond its status, as a home base for its residents. Governor Johnston had written years earlier that Brunswick Town was possibly the most unhealthy town in the whole colony, something that was likely due to the high rate of disease contracted from the mosquitoes that bred and swarmed in its swamps. Once thought to be immune to hurricanes because it was miles away from the ocean, Brunswick Town was actually ripped apart by hurricanes in 1761 and 1769. Every setback and every hurdle pushed more residents to relocate to Wilmington, or even farther away. By the start of the American Revolution, Brunswick Town was all but deserted, likely because it couldn't be protected from the British, or the weather, and it wasn't yet clear which was more dangerous. After the war began, the Redcoats would significantly burn Brunswick. A scorching final note to a once-promising town. It would be mentioned in correspondence and even used as a rallying point during the war, giving it a small role in the fight. But ultimately, Brunswick Town set silent and desolate as the country went to war around it. After the Revolution, it was discovered that Brunswick Town had been virtually destroyed, and it was only inhabited by a handful of citizens in the years to come. Eventually, even they too fled the town, leaving it completely deserted by the 1830s. With no life walking its dirt streets, maintaining its grounds, or tending to its structures, the town became overgrown, and not unlike how Morris Moore would have found it some 60 years earlier. In 1842, the entire town, which had become a visiting spot for looky-loos, would sell for just $4.25 to Frederick Hall, who had also purchased Orton Plantation. With no effort to resettle Brunswick, it would just sit there. Until it was unexpectedly thrust into another war for the fate of the country. But that's a story for another time. What happened at Brunswick Town, like Charlestown before it, can be attributed to any number of factors. Politics, land feuds, brutal hurricanes, and the sudden expanse of opportunity 
that came with the country's hard-fought freedom? Is it possible that the colonists thought resettling Brunswick Town would just be a futile exercise in holding on to the past? We'll never truly know. But what we do know is that the important role the town did play in the Cape Fear's colonial days can all be traced back to that fateful encounter in 1715, when Morris Moore set his sights on the land that would be called Brunswick. Sure, someone else would have probably come along and seen the value in the land had he not, as Confederate troops would in fact do 150 years later. But Moore's dedication to settling Brunswick and seeking to promote the attributes of the Cape Fear region make him one of its first real champions. On the eastern wall of the ruins of St. Philip's Church, descendants of Moore erected a stone plaque detailing his efforts and the contributions of the town he founded. Inscribed at the bottom is a declaration to the preservation of his legacy, and in a way, the perseverance of the enduring town of Brunswick itself. Quote, For there are deeds that should not pass away, and names that must not wither. End quote. Joining me now to talk further about the sprawling history of Brunswick Town is the man who knows it best, Jim McKee. He is the site manager of the Brunswick Town Fort Anderson Historic Site in what is now Winnebo. Thanks for being here, Jim. Thank you for having me, Hunter. And Jim has already been on this season of the podcast. He was on our episode about local duels. And if you haven't listened to the the dueling episode, I would encourage you to do so because really one of the biggest stories of that episode takes place in Brunswick Town mm-hmm. um, and kind of provides a, an interesting picture of, of an encounter that happened there. So I want to start out just briefly connecting Brunswick Town to kind of our, our arc in the past two weeks with uh, early settlements. Mm-hmm. So you can actually draw a pretty direct line from Charlestown to Brunswick Town, or at least some people involved in the stories uh, between the two, correct? A little bit, okay. a little bit. Um, Charlestown is the first Charlestown. Yeah. Charlestown or Charleston, South Carolina mm-hmm. is number three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it all evolves on the Cape Fear. And those people that started it, started Charlestown, left and eventually end up in what's now South Carolina. And some of those, you know, some of their descendants end back up in the Cape Fear at Brunswick. Yeah. So it's, um, there's kind of a rippling effect, as I said, I think last Correct. week was, um, you see kind of just the, once they kind of take hold here in the Cape Fear, they, they recognize some of the places that will work for them. They just have to kind of get it right over time, I guess. Right. So why was this particular plot of land, you know, as I just said, chosen to be what would become this region's first enduring town well there's several reasons um first off high ground if if you want to fight if you're for those of you who are moving to the cape fear region (laughs) um look for where the high ground is okay and and that's what the those first people did that's where colonel morris moore looked he looked for that high ground no not going to flood even during Florence, we had standing water everywhere, but we didn't have flood waters per se. And yours was wind, right? You know, Ours was wind, wind and yeah, water. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you don't worry about the flooding as much. 
Also, there's at least three springs right there on that property. Wow. So you got a supply, a steady supply of fresh water, which is always important back then. Yeah. Also, the river channel, the river itself, the channel flowed within 200 feet of the banks of the river. Mm-hmm. So to put their wharves or their docks out, they did not have to go too far to hit deep water. Um, just above the town, there was a, a cove, which was a safe anchorage. It was also thought to be far enough inland to protect it from hurricanes. Mm-hmm. False. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're hurricanes only two, will come where they want to. Yeah. It's only two to two and a quarter miles from the ocean. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, hurricanes are going to get it. It was also thought to be far enough upriver to protect it from pirates. Again, false. As <laughs> yeah, they, they found out in 1748. Yes, yeah. Right, right. But most importantly, the main reason why Brunswick's put right there is because of an area called the Flats, mm-hmm. which is about five, six miles upriver, halfway between Brunswick and Wilmington, where Town Creek flows into the Cape Fear River. Um, all the upstream sediments of Town Creek flowed out and settled across the river channel. So deep draft vessels couldn't make it any further up the river. Hmm. That's why Wilmington doesn't fully develop as a port until the 1820s. So they knew what they were doing, or they, they saw some of these places that they identified as beneficial for them right. and would make their lives easier, at least they thought it would, yeah. as much as it could in this in this new kind of undeveloped world that they were trying to settle and, in. And Colonel Morris Moore had scouted that region before, at least twice. Yeah. Um, once when he was went from Craven County back to South Carolina for the Yamasee War, and again when he and his brother in 1718, came up from South Carolina to look for Blackbeard. So what would it have been like for the residents of Brunswick Town then? I mean, did it develop into a, a, a pretty notable bustling place? I mean, were there a lot of people? It pretty well, it, it developed, it hit the ground running. Um, I joke, and this is probably jumping ahead a little bit, but I joke that Brunswick is the first gated community in North Carolina. Really? Yeah. And everything but gated. It. Yeah. it didn't have a homeowners association. But the town council kind of served as that. I mean, you had you had covenants on the properties. You had minimum standards you built to. Um, if you purchased a piece of property, you had a certain amount of time to develop it or resell it. If your house was damaged, you had a certain amount of time to affect repairs or tear it down and rebuild it or tear it down and improve the property for resale. So, and also, if you could afford property in Brunswick, Chances are you had plantation or two elsewhere on the river. You also had multiple properties in North Carolina, even in South Carolina. And you probably had a house in Wilmington. Yeah. And when you read some of the accounts of the people who live there, they do kind of seem like an elite part of what was developing as this this area, this this land of Carolina. I mean, um, they they were noted figures, I guess you could say. They were. I mean, they they were they were. I won't. I, I, some of them were the cream of the crop. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the people that 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 those early people that families that moved here came from Goose Creek, South Carolina, which is just above Charleston, and those people wanted to be big fish in a little pond mm-hmm. instead of little fish in a big pond, as they were in Charleston. So they really wanted to to you know step away and step up in society. And the best way to do that was to just drop everything in South Carolina and come up to North Carolina. Yeah. The the Moors, the Howells, the Lords, 
the Drys, Davises. Um, you look at some of these old first families of Cape Fear names, they're still here. Mm-hmm. And they came up from Goose Creek. Was there opportunity for middle class families, though? Or was this kind of, uh, you know, as we just said, was there a place for those people? There was. Okay. There was a place. Brumslick was a place for just about everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the records are just scarce. Most of what we learn about Brunswick is through archaeology. And we do find middle class artifacts. We find a lot of high status artifacts. We also find quite a few lower class artifacts. Being a port, you're going to have all steps of life. Um, Unfortunately, we know very, very little about that middle and lower class. I want to focus on a few specific things out at Brunswick Town. And really, the first one is really the first one that you see when you get there, which is St. Philip's Church. And I told our listeners a little bit about its construction and kind of its troubled construction over the years. I mean, it spans two royal governors just trying to get it done. Um, But one question I have for you is, why would someone be buried in the church, which is where one of uh, Arthur Dobbs is? Right. Arthur Dobbs is buried there. We're pretty sure the infant son of William Trine is buried in there. And then there's probably four of three, maybe four other graves that date from when the church was still in use. Uh, There's 12 total. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of them are going to be post-burning. But that's that's Anglican-European custom. Uh, If you're very, very high status um, and, and very influential in that church, you have an opportunity to be buried in it. It's that's that you know thinking about that now is kind of crazy that mm-hmm. you would you know you would have the funeral be inside the church. I mean that they right. would bury them, especially since it's still in use. So um, I imagine that takes some effort to bury someone within that. I mean, did, did they just well, dig up the floor? They just took up they took up the walkway. Okay, the walkways <laughs> there was there was two main walkways. One that went both of them went right down the middle. One ran east west. One ran north south. And what the, it was tile, probably two to three feet wide, and they could just pull up the tiles and bury underneath them. Yeah. That's how we can tell who's buried when it was in operation, as opposed to because they're not going to pull up the pews and the floors and yeah. bury underneath that. Well, I guess that makes it so people weren't going to forget you if they were Correct. constantly going to church and having to realize, oh yeah, he's still buried there. So, yeah. and unfortunately, there's none of the graves inside the church are marked yet. Um, we've, we've toyed with the idea on how to mark them. Um, but until we come up with a real solid plan, that's not going to be obtrusive. Then that's just, we've got them marked on, on markers outside the church. You know, and if, if you haven't been to Brunswick town, I would encourage you to go for a variety of reasons that we will discuss today, but if nothing else to see the church, because it's gorgeous i mean it's the walls of the church are still there but there's green grass in the middle of it and i went out there uh, earlier this spring and it was a gorgeous day and it's just kind of uh, you know breathtaking to see just how much of it's still there but also how sturdy it is i mean it's oh yeah brick wall and 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 to look at that and and realize just how big this building is i mean it was when it was completed it was arguably the grandest brick structure mm-hmm. or brick church in North Carolina. It was definitely one of the one of the bigger brick structures in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 76 feet east to west, 53 feet north to south, 24 feet high, and 3 feet thick. 
It's not going anywhere. Yeah, three feet thick is where it gets. That's right. where it helps. And that's solid bonded brick. It's not a layer, a layer, and then fill in the middle. No, it's yeah. all bonded. Well, and, and as I mentioned in the story, it took shells during the Civil War. Exactly. And uh, still stands. Yeah, at least it was hit, we know, at least three times, three directs, a uh, two nine-inch and an 11-inch shell, and they just bounced off. Wow. Um, well, if you're going to take all those years to build it, at least make sure it stands for as long as it can. Yeah. It took four years to get those walls up. Yeah, well, they it seemed to be worth it, I guess. If oh, yeah. One other, one other structure that I think is important um, is the home of the governors, um, which has a couple names, I think. It's got several. It's got, it started out as Russellboro, mm-hmm. named for Captain John Russell of, of, his, of, the, of the Royal Navy, who was building that as his retirement home. And then he died in 1757, just before it was finished. Then when Royal Governor Arthur Dobbs came, the town commissioners convinced Dobbs or sold the house and the property to Dobbs. It was something like five pounds and a peppercorn. And the transactions pepper- of those days were I know. quite weird. Well, the peppercorn was, was due a year after. Okay. And so if Dobbs wanted to stay, he owed a peppercorn. And it was a way to ensure that the governor was a permanent resident of Brunswick for at least a year. So Dobbs ends up buying the house, renames it Castle Dobbs. Which is subtle. So exactly. Subtle. Then Dobbs dies in the house in, in uh, March 28, 1765. Buried in St. Philip's Church on his birthday, April 2nd. And then William Tryon purchases the house and renames it Castle Tryon. He stays there while his palace is being built in Newburn. And in 1770, he moves to Newburn, sells the house to William Dry. William Dry renames it Belfont. And that's the name it holds until it's burned in March of 1776. So it, it had many lives, kind of like Brunswick Town. Kind of like Brunswick Town. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that, that structure, I mean, obviously has been excavated over time. You can see kind of the outline of it. Right. Yeah, that was uh, 19, spring of 1964 is when uh, Burrow and the kitchen were excavated. Fascinating artifacts came out of there. Um, they found the wine cellar. And the wine cellar was actually interesting. It was under the north floor of the porch. And when the British burned it and started to march away, the British had to take cover because they came under fire from what they thought was the militia. But what, when they stopped and you know, collected themselves, they realized they weren't under fire. It was the wine cellar cooking off. So all these bottles of wine just started cooking and popping like musket shots. Really? So the whole north side of the uh, underneath the, the porch littered with wine bottles. Wow. They also found one of the most fascinating artifacts, the flush toilet. Really? Flush toilet. Yep. Of that which time is, period. Wow. Which is, to my knowledge, the only, well, the oldest flush toilet in North Carolina. Wow. Um, we think it was put in about 1762. Okay. Um, Arthur Dobbs, when, when he remarried in March of 62, he was in his 70s. And the young lady he married, Justina Davis, was reported to be about 17. And a month later, they had a, he had a stroke. Mm-hmm. You do the math on that. Yeah. Um, so he, that stroke gave him some paralysis in his lower body. Um, and he was confined to a wheelchair for several months, eventually got use of his legs, 
But we think it was about that time period that they had the toilet constructed for them. Wow. That is uh, definitely a show of status in mm-hmm. the colonial times to have uh, a flush toilet. <laughs> exactly. And we have it on display. Well, yeah, we have yeah. the bowl. It's a oh, coquina. Right, yes, a yeah, coquina bowl. You know, one thing that Brunswick Town did suffer from was hurricanes, oh, yeah. um, as we mentioned. I imagine that they kind of got a rude awakening as they started doing that of just having to deal with these storms. I mean, obviously, we know them today, but being a settlement, it would have been a whole different ballgame of trying to oh, yeah. survive a, a strong storm that really comes out of nowhere because they didn't have Doppler radar like we do today. So exactly. They how did that no happen? Clue. I mean, how did it what kind of you know damage was done? Was there any specific you know, stronger storm that kind of stands out? There was several. Um, the, the, the first one that I'll, that I'll mention was the 1761 hurricane. Uh, the 1761 hurricane is the storm that opened up New Inlet. Mm-hmm. It is also, if, it had been, if they had named storms back, then they would have probably named it Florence because <laughs> it's right. almost identical. Okay. Hung on for three or four days and mm-hmm. just blew and blew and blew. The difference that I've been able to find between Florence and the 1761 storm is it appears the 1761 storm hit somewhere between Little River and Chalote okay. Inlet. And that put this area on the bad side. Yeah. And that's what opened up New Inlet. But that also changed the whole Cape, Lower Cape Fear mm-hmm. by opening up that new entrance to the Cape Fear. Yeah. It opened it up, made it more accessible to trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other hurricane would be the 1769 hurricane. That one, you could almost say, was like Hurricane Sandy that hit okay. several years ago that just went up the entire coast into the northeast. Um, that one is a storm that knocked down the courthouse probably the jail, and did extensive damage. Uh, Governor Tryon reported it knocked down 100,000 trees in the wow. in the area. Wow. And, you know, I'll tell you and our listeners this. Uh, later this season, we're going to do an episode on hurricanes from, you know, the colonial times, even pre-colonial times, to Hurricane Hazel, mm-hmm. you know, because that's kind of a an interesting time for hurricanes because it really isn't one in the days without any type of radar. So you just kind of have to read the wind and understand what's coming and recognize the signs. And then also in the early days of kind of radar and naming hurricanes and trying to recognize the historical patterns and stuff like that. And so we're going to get into that, but Brunswick town absolutely took a beating Mm -hmm. um, from a lot of these. And a lot of these buildings that we're talking about also took a beating in St. Philip's church. um, Didn't its roof get blown off by (laughs) one of these? Yeah. The, um, the storm of, there was a storm in 1760. In the summer of 1760, they had, by July they had just gotten the roof put on the church. With the, and the only description we have very little descriptions of St. Philip's Church, but we do know there was a roof, and we do know there was a small belfry right in the middle of the roof. And so in July they announced they've got it completed, or they got the roof on. Then in August it is struck by lightning, and then in September of 1760 a hurricane hit and the roof collapsed. So it would be 1762 before they get the roof put back on. That must be a weird sign from God, I imagine, if you're working on a church for all those years and then the roof blows <laughs> and then the off roof again. Blows off. Yeah, yeah um, someone's not happy. Someone's not happy about it. Um, but it did. Now that did, I think, influence the the final architecture of the church. Yeah. And this is usually a test question I give to uh, to visitors, because one of the questions that's always asked is, what are the holes 
mm-hmm. on the outside of the church. And they're little square holes, like there's a brick missing. And they are. The bricks are missing. And But people say, well, what are those? And if you look at it closely, you think, well, that's where they mounted the shutters for the windows. But you see those holes all the way around equally. They were actually, they're, they're, the technical term for them is put log holes. And we now would call them um, scaffolding pockets. So when they constructed the church, they just would leave out some headers, slide in their logs to build their scaffolding, and that's how they built the walls. In Eastern architecture, East European, you see that a lot, those exposed holes. In Western architecture, West European, North American, they usually backfill those, just put a, put a header back in there. But in the case of St. Philip's Church, because it was so big and it dominated the landscape, it wasn't if they'd have to repair the roof, but when. Okay. And that's what they learned in 1760. So they prepared. You know, you got to give them credit that they, you know, they kind of knew what they were doing in the time period. Oh, yeah. Um, One thing I find just completely, utterly fascinating about Brunswick Town, which, and I, I love the story of Brunswick Town, and I'm glad we're finally doing it because it's one of those places that you can go see. I mean, you can see history right in front of you. Um, is it had so many lives. I mean, it was not oh, yeah. only this this colonial port, but it was also a Civil War fort. It became a popular excavation site, and now it is a, a, a very busy state historic site. I mean, is it unusual that a specific town like this, something that is you know, rooted in our origins, really charts the whole history of this region? I mean, is that unusual to see kind of the redevelopment of a site like that? I think it is. Yeah. Um, you think about it, you think it, I mean, there's plenty of colonial towns and cities that are still going, but you, you, it's rare that you find what you could almost call a ghost town. Yeah. But part of that is because it was literally abandoned and then incorporated into Orton Plantation. So it was, for the most part, off limits. Then it was used as a fort. And then. You had an incident in March of 1866 where the Revenue Cutter Service was was using the the dock there, and a magazine exploded. So it's taboo. No one's going out there now. You're going to get killed out there. And then in the early 1950s, the Army decides they're going to incorporate part of that property into Sunny Point, but to protect that property – the landowners donate the property to the state to be turned into a historic site. So those circumstances are unusual. It, it took all of those circumstances to create what we've got and to save what we've got right now. It's like it didn't want to be forgotten or people no, didn't, didn't want to forget it. The, a, a paper I'm getting ready to do is uh, concerns the death of Brunswick. And you know, most people, if you read the general history of Brunswick Town, you will think Brunswick went out with a bang during the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. No. Battle Brunswick of fire and out, everything. Yeah, Brunswick went out with a whimper. Now, it went out kicking and screaming. Well, not kicking and screaming, but kicking, kicking and whimpering. Okay. <laughs> um, it went out very quietly. That's why no one really understands the demise of the town. There wasn't a massive battle in the, no, in the courtyard no, no, of Brunswick no. Town that makes it a legendary place. No, it was, it was politics, um, and it was technology. And the politics, well, this, up, this, this upstart little town called 
that finally, after 10 years, settled on the name Wilmington is, is what did it. Um, and then naval t- the change in naval technology with steam power. You know, once ships, once ocean-going ships could cross the flats, mm-hmm. there was no need for Brunswick. So it's it's just a it's a confluence of, of things that are really going to just constantly Correct. kind of chip away at, at people's kind of <clears throat> allegiance to staying in this particular area. Exactly. So it was a difficult place. I mean, it, and it was like I said, it was only two within two miles of the ocean. Yeah. So it is getting hit harder by hurricanes for the most part. Um, it, it was a little difficult. It was off the main road for the, for the most part. It's closer to the two inlets, but still. It sounds like the things that they chose Brunswick Town for also kind of worked against it exactly. as time went on. Exactly. I'm sure if, if the flats hadn't have been where they were, Wilmington would have would have been the port. Yeah. Now, I'll tell people that, you know, we're doing a lot of discussion on Brunswick Town specifically. I have not forgotten Fort Anderson and its role in the Civil War. But for this two part episode on on these early settlements, I think it's interesting to look at the parallels of uh, Charlestown and and Brunswick Town and also the differences of just how this area was settled. Mm -hmm. Um, So Fort Anderson has not been forgotten. Um, It's just a different time in this area. Different it's a time. different time yeah. for this site. And so I want to give it its due in a, in a later episode. Well, but. real quick, um, if it wasn't for Brunswick, Fort Anderson would have had a much more difficult existence mm-hmm. because one of the, one of the things the Confederates did when they were building the fort, when it came time to start building their quarters and their structure, their warehouses and that sort of thing is they went around to the ruins of the town and collected every intact brick they could find, carted it into the fort. And that's what they built there. And some of the ballast stone. And that's what they built their structures with. That's why for most of the ruins that have been excavated, it's rare to find an intact brick. Wow. I didn't, I didn't, it's I didn't very know that. rare, very rare. I think, uh, it was a salvage site. Yeah. It sounds like. Oh, yeah. They would go to where the chimney falls were. And when they were excavated, you'd, you know, the, the archaeologists would note there's a pile of brick bats here. There's a pile of brick bats here. There's a pile of brick bats here. We found two intact bricks. I mean, when wow. we've been doing the excavations, aside from this year, most everything, there are no, there's maybe, I think the most we have found is maybe four intact bricks on any given ruin. Wow. They didn't, they didn't waste any bricks. It sounded nope. like, so I'll bring you back in when we do our Fort Anderson uh, story, because that's a, that's a whole nother use of this site. I mean, completely oh, yeah. it's not, it wasn't really a settlement. It was a staking of a ground. I mean, they were, they were trying to protect this area with this site that just also happened to be something completely different a uh, hundred years earlier or right. a little less, but, and the, the main pastime for the Confederates was relic hunting. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, I, but probably that would be me too. If I was exactly. there too, I would want to go scouting whatever's on this site. Now I want to jump to what you just mentioned, which was excavation, because mm-hmm. this became a huge excavation site and it continues to be that today. I mean, Brunswick town was just in the news across the world. I mean, there was international yeah. coverage of what happened at Brunswick town because you had a group of our archeology span students come out and they found, uh, a, something really exciting. What did they find? They found a tavern. Um, and the thing about colonial towns, especially port towns, taverns are a lot of times can be the center. The churches are always going to be the center, but the taverns on a day-to-day basis, 
serves so many purposes. It's not just a place to go drink. Mm-hmm. The taverns sometimes would serve, you could have court there. I know after Brunswick's demise, the courthouse was moved, for Brunswick County, was moved out to Lockwood Folly and was held in a tavern. But you're, you're getting news, businesses being conducted, uh, entertainment. I mean, just everything happens in the taverns. One of the things I just found out about our tavern, not specifically this one per se, but when ships would come in and there wasn't a postmaster, then a lot of the ship mail would just be placed in a tavern and, you know, sailors could come in and pick up mail. So mm-hmm. it was, it, it really is almost one of, one of my coworkers uh, likened it to almost a country club. Interesting. Yeah. So, you and I were talking about this, about um, they were excavating it for a few weeks and then they cover it back up. Correct. So if you go out to Brunswick town right now, you don't, you're not going to be able to look into the hole where the foundation is, Right. but it's a continuous process. I mean, they will dig it back up. They'll come back next year and uncover it and continue the excavations. Why is that done? Well, you really can't have a five foot hole, five foot deep hole next to a walking path. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but more important, and, and that as important as that, that's a safety issue. But also, the brick are not going to survive as well exposed like they would be. True. We're heading into hurricane season. So, you know, you know, God forbid we get another one. But this protects it because it's been protected from the elements for, for 200, 200 years. Yeah. Now. We think the, 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 building met, the building burned, the tavern burned somewhere between 1766 and 1769. Okay. We, we can narrow it down to those dates because we actually found an Irish halfpenny dated 1766. Wow, that is cool. And it does not show up on the 1769 map. Hmm. So somewhere okay. in that three-year period, it met its demise. Someone struck it from the map after it was uh, after it was done. Right. So one thing that was found uh, that informs a really big event at Brunswick Town is um, a a well. Tell me about it because okay. it, it's it, it it involves the Stamp Act. But you tell the story so well, and I, I want to make sure it's done right. But it, it's interesting that it's coming back up now mm-hmm. because I saw reports of it yesterday in the news. Yeah. The other thing about taverns is, like I said, they're meeting places. And you can have all kinds of meetings. You can have a group over here talking business, group over here conducting business, some talking law, and then you might have people talking sedition. And one of the artifacts, it was actually found July 3rd. So well close after, to being on Independence Day. <laughs> yeah, so close, so close. If, if, if Independence Day wasn't a holiday, exactly. they might have found they it on Independence it. Day. But... The, um, the And this was you know, two and a half weeks after the excavations had ended. The artifacts have to be cleaned, as I said. And they were cleaning a batch of artifacts. And one of the students said, called, called Dr. Ewan aside and said, Dr. Ewan, we found, I found this little jewel, and it looks like it's got writing on it. So they put it on a light board, took a photograph of it, and enlarged it. And sure enough, this was a, we think, a glass jewel that went into a cufflink. So that'll give you an idea of how small it was. And it had the words, Wilkes and Liberty 45. Now, Wilkes and Liberty 45 was a, a rallying cry in the colonies. 
which was anti anti government, anti parliament, anti king, and this actually predates a little bit of before the Stamp Act. This predates taxation without representation. So this is an early seditious. And when I say early, we're only talking the 1760s, early 1760s. But the, the number 45 has to do with the pamphlet number that, or the, the edition number that, that John Wilkes printed. And it was a rallying cry all over. It's very cool, and I'm I'm going to post a picture Please of what do. it looks yeah. like because yeah, it's amazing. It, you know, we're talking about the size of it, but it still has very legibly written in this. I mean, this thing is two hundred some years old, mm-hmm. but you can still read exactly what it says. And I just I don't know if I'd have been able to contain myself had I been yeah. the one who found that. But uh, what does it say about Brunswick Town's role in the Stamp Act, or even before? Because you know that that was a big part of this this story as well. Yeah, it, it, Brunswick. One of the things Brunswick doesn't get its due on is its role in the founding of this country. Brunswick is, aside from it being arguably the most important colonial port nobody's ever heard of, it was kind of, you could argue, the cradle of revolution in many ways. Not discounting what happened in Massachusetts, Virginia. New York, you know, with the Stamp Act, and even Wilmington. But the sun of history does not rise and set on those colonies. Brunswick, in February, February 19th through the 21st, 1766, had an armed rebellion. The Stamp Act at Brunswick was an armed rebellion. No shots were fired. Nobody got hurt, other than a lot of hangovers. Um, But, uh, it was an armed rebellion, and it was successful. I can't pin down whether or not this was the first successful armed rebellion in in, in colonial America, but it's one. It's at least one of the first. It's a. Uh, it's fascinating, kind of what happened just out in Brunswick Town. Yeah. Um, I think I know the answer to this just because of our discussion of the continued excavation. But it sounds like there's more to be discovered at Brunswick Town. There's 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 things left to Oh yeah, excavated. Only only about a quarter of the town has been excavated. Do you know it's under the ground? I mean, has there surveys been done of of what's underneath the ground? No, you just kind of guess it. You guess. Um, Yeah, we've we've. Best way to describe the history of Brunswick is a jigsaw puzzle, with three quarters of the pieces missing. So we've got a patch over here, a patch over here, a patch over here, patch over here. You know, but nothing is connected yet. So, yeah, we've got the 1769 map. And so we know what the town looked like. All that 1769 map is, is a snapshot. We don't know what was there before. We don't know what was there after. I was about to say, there's 40-some years before that map. Exactly. And, you know, we think about the 1760s is when Brunswick is just reaching its peak as a port. And what the, the excavation this year told us is how much we don't know. We had no idea that tavern was there. We have no idea what's in the ground. None. We can do ground penetrator radar all we want to, but every time we do it, it's going to show something different, depending on ground conditions, depending on the weather, depending on the operator. It will show something different. 
So there's a, still a lot of life left in Brunswick to There's uncover. a ton of life. There's still so much to learn. That must make it be fun to go to work every day, just knowing that that's out there. Yeah, I, I honestly, honestly, I'm the luckiest person in the world because I honestly have no problem waking up in the morning and going to work. <laughs> hey, that's a good thing. I don't know if everybody can say that. Um, you, you also said that um, this, you know, there, there's things that you could find here and there. So... I mean, why not just be excavating all the time? What, what's what's the kind of what's the reason for doing kind of spot excavations? Well, archaeology is the most destructive of the sciences, but it is it's the most destructive, and you've only got one shot to get it right the first time. Because once you open, once you crack the ground open, and start digging, you are now destroying. Once you get under the the topsoil and the root mat, you're getting into ground that with any luck hasn't has not been disturbed in 200 years and you've got to be able to read that ground and then once you get the stuff once you get the artifacts out of the ground well you got to put them somewhere and you got to give them a lot of tender love and care you got to give them tlc you got to you got to clean them you got to catalog them and then you've what you've only got we've only got so much museum space yeah and what we're finding is we've only got so much storage space in Raleigh. The Brunswick collection is the largest in the state. The archaeological collection is by far and away the largest in the state. And also archaeology, theory, and techniques, like anything else, are constantly evolving. And so it's always good to leave something for future generations. So this is a process, you know, it's a, it's like, not to, not to use your metaphor, but it's a jigsaw puzzle that you kind of start and let other people finish. Correct. Not, no one person is going to put this puzzle together. Yeah. I comment that, that we know a hundred percent of 20% of what happened there. That's, that's fun to know though. Yeah. And I keep wanting to add, you know, I keep wanting to say, oh, now we know 25%. Honestly, I'll be, we're lucky if we even know 20%. Yeah. That's fascinating. It must make it interesting when you're walking around and doing things, just kind of looking out at a patch of land out there and be like, you know, who knows what's out there? Oh yeah. What's under the ground. And and you look and you will walk by something, walk by an area for years. And then you walk along and all of a sudden you realize something's different and you realize the ground settled just ever so slightly, but it's enough where you notice it and you're like, okay, I wonder what's there. Mm Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's why I love it. Or you story. walk by it and, and all of a sudden there's two or three brick fragments or some pottery or glass or something stick, you know, popped up out of the ground. This is why I would encourage everyone to go visit Brunswick Town because it is, uh, it is definitely a site. Obviously, there's things there that have been excavated that you can look at and learn at. But there's also that kind of wonderment of just, mm-hmm. you know, wonder what they're going to find next. Yeah. Well, Jim, this is not going to be the only time we talk about that site with you because, uh, like we've said, there's a whole other chapter to this with Fort Anderson and even more about the story of excavation because, as I said, I would encourage everyone to go visit it because um, there's all these houses. You can see part of Russellboro. Um, You can see, uh, definitely see St. Philip's Church. It's hard to miss. It's so beautifully kind of right there. So there's still, as we said, a lot of life in Brunswick. It's It's a piece of history, but it's still one that, you know, we're unearthing to use the title That's of the it. show. So, uh, it's Cape Fear on Earth. There you go. Thank you so much for being here, Jim. I Thank really you. appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you again soon.
That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of Brunswick Town. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday with a special episode looking at Volume 2 of our Cape Fear Classics. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed. Or you can email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week, I'm going to be sharing some photos of what Brunswick Town looked like before it was excavated in the 20th century, and photos of when I went and took a tour of Brunswick Town so that you can see what it looks like today. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter that will go out every Thursday. In it, I include links to the new episode and any supplemental pictures and videos I uncover in my research. All delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for the newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which helps more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.